God, thank you again for the chance to be in your house tonight. We thank you for the wonderful uh, time of singing and worship we've already experienced. And God, as we, uh, as we look into your word, speak to our hearts. May we be open. May we want to hear what you have to say and give us the courage uh, to act on it, to obey you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's give the guys another hand. Tough act to follow, Bill. Thank you very much for that. <laughs> Anything you can do, I appreciate. Music guys are always giving me problems like that. That's just part of the part of the calling, isn't it? It's part of the calling. Everybody in here uh, is semi-familiar with baseball, and that we have entered uh, baseball and softball season, particularly baseball. Thinking about this evening, and you know, Major League Baseball is the ultimate, correct? The uh, the Texas Rangers, the New York Yankees, whoever your team is. But you, you may or you may not know there's a lot of different levels of professional baseball. You don't just get out of high school or college and go play for the Yankees normally. You, there's a lot of different steps. There's rookie league. Sometimes there's one or two levels of rookie league. There's class A baseball, and then there's double A baseball, and then there's triple A baseball. And then if you're really good and you get a few breaks and you make it to the big leagues. You play in the majors. And the, the paycheck difference is uh, gigantic from about $100 to $200 a week to, uh, you know, $25 million a year depending on uh, who that you are. There's a lot of people. There are thousands of people, thousands of young men today in minor league baseball. There is less than 1,000 in major league. It's, uh, there's some big step differences there. Well, this evening in Hebrews 5... We're going to look at what I'm calling Major League Christianity. The difference is, is that many of us here will never play Major League Baseball. We're too short, we're too squatty, we're too slow, we're too old. Whatever it may be, we'll blame it on God that we can't do that. But everyone here has the potential of being a big league Christian. Let me tell you some sad news on this. Very few people make it to the big leagues as Christians. But it is obtainable. So let's look at tonight in Hebrews chapter 5. I want to show you two big thoughts on what a major league Christian looks like. Here's the first thing. You've got to be a passionate person of prayer. People who are big league Christians, people who move beyond everyday second, third, fourth grade, which is great if you're a second, third, fourth grade Christian, But people who take their Christian life to the next level are men and women. They're young people who who see and understand the extreme importance of prayer in their life. In verse 7, it says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent Submission. These words here are significant. It says he offered up prayers, which meant requests for specific benefits. It says he offered up petitions, which was a humble and earnest prayer. It, it's interesting here. You see the cries and tears. The rabbis of Jesus' day, this is not a biblical thing, but it's an interesting thing that Jesus had probably heard, and the writer of Hebrews had probably heard too, that they said there were three levels of prayers. There was praying, there was crying, 
And then ultimately there was tears, the brokenness that a person had in their life and in their prayer life. Now, when it says in verse 7, in his life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears. What was it talking about here? Well, I believe it may have been talking about several things. It may have been talking about when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. How many of you remember what the Bible, how it describes the intensity of his prayer? Uh, You remember when Jesus was on the cross, he was doing some serious praying. You remember that? He was doing some serious, intense praying. In John 17, it's it's the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. And no doubt that we see intensity in his prayer. But I want to offer you another little tidbit here. I don't think this was talking about one particular incident. I think this was talking about the life of Jesus Christ and his prayer life. If you're taking notes, you can write these down. Luke chapter 5, verse 16. Luke 5, 16. I think it's coming on the screens, is it not? There it is. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Jesus, listen, the pattern of Jesus' prayer life or his life was he was a man of prayer. He often, you read over and over and over, what Jesus did is he got along with the Father and he prayed. You remember before Jesus picked the 12 disciples what he did? It says he sat up all night and he worried and he bit his fingernails and he called his friends, he texted his friends and said, what do I do, what do I do? No. It says he did what? He spent the whole night in prayer alone with the Father, grinding it out, finding what he should do. Jesus was a man who was passionate about prayer. Now, Luke chapter 11, verse 1, is a very interesting verse. Luke 11, 1 says, One day when Jesus was praying in a certain place, when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, Teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples to pray. Leave that there for just a second. Now, now, now guys and, and girls, here's something that's very, very, very interesting. We have no record that Jesus' disciples ever asked him, Lord, teach us to preach like you preached. We have no record of them ever asking him, Jesus, teach us to teach as you teach. And he was a great preacher and a great teacher. We have no record that they ever asked Jesus, Jesus, teach us to sing and worship like you you sang and you worshiped. And Jesus did sing and he worshiped. We have no record they ever asked Jesus, teach us how to study the Bible like you study the Bible. You know the one thing we have a record of, they ask him, Jesus, teach us to pray as you pray. And just like John, the the, the Baptist, who also was an awesome guy, taught his disciples to pray. You know why? Because they saw, I think, two things. One, they saw that the source of Jesus' power was related to what? His prayer life. I think, two, I'm going to give you three things. They saw this was the priority. And three, the passion of his life. Guys, that verse is not an accident. And if you're serious about Jesus and you want to be a big league Christian, that verse ought to mean something to you. How do you move to the next level in your Christianity? You get passionate about talking to God. You know, we use the word passion, and I've heard before, men don't like the word passion. I think that's baloney. We like the word passion. We're passionate about uh, LSU football and tech football and, and you guys about the Gators or Florida State, whoever it may be. Uh, no, the, whoever it may be in Florida. But we're, we're di- we got passions, don't we? Women are passionate about the mall. Have you ever noticed that? Passionate about shopping. We, we have th- I'm passionate about ice cream. We have things we are passionate about. 
Hey, what in the world is it wrong being passionate about God? What's wrong being passionate about your prayer life? How about nothing is wrong with it? In fact, it's the key to you going to the next level with God is learning to be passionate about your prayer. Now, listen, most of us use prayer as what? A spare tire, don't we? How many of you know what the geek squad is? You know what the geek squad is? I, I, don't, I don't think we have one of those in Ruston, do we? We may have Monroe, whoever. The geek squad is, they're technology people that you call, obviously tech geeks is what they're going by, that when your computer, you have a breakdown, they come and they fix it. We often use God like the geek squad, don't we? We don't call on him. We don't talk to him unless there's an emergency, right? God's on our 911 speed dial. And let me tell you something. It's great to go to God when you need him. But I'm, going to ch- I'm trying to challenge you to go the next level in your spiritual life, and that's that you develop a passion about prayer. Folks, That if you will begin to ask God, you, you begin to pray to God, this is a prayer I promise you'll feel answer. God, help me to be disciplined and help me to be passionate about praying. You know what? I promise you God will answer that prayer. God, help me to be disciplined and passionate about prayer. Now, I want to show you something else here that's very, very important. A submissive heart is paramount to connecting to God. You say, I want to pray and I want to be effective in prayer. You don't approach God on your own terms. In verse 7, with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because he was active in Sunday school. It would have been Sabbath school anyway. That's not what it says, is it? Read that with me. He was heard because of his reverent Submission. That, that's, a, that's a fancy way of saying because of his obedient, submissive life to the Father. Now, you're seeing the blend here, and you're going to see the blend tonight, of the humanity and the divinity of Jesus Christ. He's 100% man and 100% God. What do you think it takes to connect to God in prayer? Do, do you think everyone has equal footing before God in prayer? And the answer to that's No. We can, but we don't. I heard a great story. It's a great story to me of a little six-year-old boy. At Christmas, he was doing something different. Instead of writing a letter to Santa, he wrote a letter to God, telling God what he wanted for Christmas. I mean, why not bypass Santa and go to the top, correct? And so he begins his letter. This is a true story. And he says, God, I have been real good for six months. Here's what I want. And he lays it out. He looks at his letter, and he goes back, and he goes... Nah, scratches out six and puts three months. Looks at the letter again, scratches out three months and says, God, I've been good for one month. Then he looks at that and he scratches it out and he goes over to the manger scene at the house. He gets Mary from the manger scene. You know, she's there having, uh, you know, around the baby Jesus. He gets it. He puts Mary in the pocket. He literally writes in the letter, Jesus, if you ever want to see your mother again. (laughs) Do I need to tell you that won't work? <laughs> I hope not. You connect with God on his terms. It says the, the human Jesus connected with the Father because of his reverent, obedient, 
following his father. Let me give you a few thoughts on this. Prayer is for Christians. God's not Santa Claus. God wants your life first. And as a Christian, let me give you a few thoughts. One, you, you have to forgive others to have an effective prayer life. You can't be a bitter, unforgiving person and have an effective prayer life. You have to deal with the sin in your life. And Psalm 66, 18 is a very powerful verse. It says, if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. In other words, that... I can't be hateful to other people. I can't keep a bunch of junk in my life and expect to have an effective, powerful prayer life. In John chapter 15, verses 5 through 7, there's some great verses. Jesus, uh, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. John 15, 7, right after this, John 15, 7, coming once, coming twice, there it is. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you will and it will be given. You see, what the Bible's teaching there, what Jesus is teaching there is that we approach God on his terms. It begins when we enter into a relationship with him, we become a Christian. But as a Christian, you can't live like the devil and expect to ring the bells of heaven. Did you hear me? You can't expect to live like the devil and and have a powerful prayer life. And guys, if you want to move past first grade, if you want to move past class A Christianity into the big leagues, you and I have to make a decision that we are going to become disciplined, passionate men and women of prayer. Discipline means I do it when I don't feel like doing it. I do it when it's hard. I do it when I'm mad at God. Passionate means as you continue to be disciplined in it, you develop a passion and a burden and a desire for prayer. You want to take your Christianity to the next level, become a passionate person of prayer. Now, here's the second thing this evening. Let God shape you into all that you should be. Okay, you want, to, you, you want to move to the next level in your Christian life. It begins, I believe, what we see in this text. When you develop a passionate prayer life, you're growing and feeding your relationship with God, and then you decide, you decide you're going to let God shape you into all that you should be. Now, I'm, I want you to look at me just for a second. How many of you tonight feel like you're everything God intends for you to be tonight? If you raise your hand, you're going to finish this sermon. Because you need to be preaching, not me. None of us are. We all are supposed to be a work in progress, correct? A lot of people don't get that. Guys, I went to a Baptist college, and I want to tell you, I can remember that was not that terribly long ago, but it was over 20 years ago. And I can remember 21 and 22-year-old guys that thought they had it all figured out. I mean, they were all that they should be, and the next step for them was being given wings and becoming an angel. You look back on that now and you laugh, but it's sad. If we're going to be the next level of Christians that I believe very few people attain this, 
We've got to let God shape us into everything he wants us to be. Here's the first part of this. You've got to learn from your life lessons. How many of you ever feel like you're in the woodshed in life? Well, let me give you some comforting words. If you're not there tonight, you will be again. You'll go through some hard times. Verse 8 is a very interesting verse. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. That was our memory verse tonight. Jesus is God. Jesus is man. The book of Hebrews constantly balances these two things, 100% God, 100% man. And we're seeing this humanity of Christ play out here in his human development. Looks what it says. He learned obedience from what he suffered. The word suffer there means to experience evil. You're going you're gonna to live in this world. You know what? You're going to experience evil. And it literally means to just to suffer, to experience hard things. Now, folks, Jesus didn't move from a disobedient lifestyle to obedient. When it says that he learned obedience, it, it doesn't mean that he was disobedient and he learned to be obedient. That's not what it's saying. It's saying as a human, he grew in his sympathy and his understanding of us. He grew in his understanding as he grew and developed for, God, uh, for God's plan in his life. In Luke chapter 2, verse 52, again, it, this is hard to understand, Luke 2, 52 uh, Luke 2.52, what it says is that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. As he, as he, as a young man, as he developed, he grew in wisdom and stature. In other words, uh, and he was liked by man and God. You see the human side of the development of Jesus Christ here. There's no other religion on all of the study of Islam, Buddhism, uh, if you study Hinduism... There's no other religion where the God suffers like he does in Christianity. And it's saying here that the human Jesus learned and developed into who God wanted him to be as a human, as a man, from the hard junk and the pain that he went through. Folks, there's no life without suffering. How many of you realize that? There's, there's no life without pain. It's not an option. You hear someone preach and they say, follow Jesus, live for Jesus, tithe to their ministry, and you'll be wealthy, rich, and healthy. They're wanting your money. Life is, you're going to suffer. Life, you're going you're to go through pain. The, 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 the problem and the idea here is, is what are we going to do with it? What are we going to allow God to do with it? Some of you are suffering tonight. Some of you are, everything's great tonight. This time next week, your whole world may be upside down. This time six months from now, your world may be upside down. Someone said, and I think very properly, God whispers to us through our, tri our, our victories and our joys, and God screams to us through our pain. Would you agree with that? God screams to us in our pain what are you going to do with your sufferings and your pains? See, here's what the Bible says. Jesus allowed the mistreatment, the beatings, the sufferings. He, he learned from his life lessons. And they are the things that developed him as a human 
into everything that God wanted him to be. And that's what God's challenging us. See, you see, pain is, there's no guarantee just because you suffer, you're going to get better. There's no, there's no guarantee because you go through hard times, you're going to become more like Jesus Christ. In fact, two things happen when you suffer. You get bitter or you get better. And I want to tell you, a lot of God's people get bitter. A lot of people aren't in church tonight because they got mad at God or they got mad about something 20 years ago and they have not got over it. Life lessons aren't going to be learned just because you experience them. Life lessons are going to be learned because you allow God to do something positive with it in your life. See, God's trying to constantly shape us to be like Jesus Christ. He's trying to make you more into the man or the woman that he wants you to be. And the only way that's going to happen is when you start praying like you should and you start letting God even use the junk and the evil and the bad people. Ooh, the bad people. Don't you want to punch the bad people? That's not allowing God to use that, by the way. But when you allow even the hurtful the harmful people and the harmful things... To develop you. You see, tragedy's either gonna, it's either gonna make you better or it's gonna make you bitter. The trials are gonna either tempt you and push you away from God or they're gonna lead you to triumph. Here's what he tells us tonight one thing learn from the lessons you go through. I don't know what you're going through, but I know you are. I don't know what you're going through, I know you will. Like Jesus Christ, learn from it. Let it help you become more obedient to Christ. Be more submissive to God in your pain. And here's how he brings it together. As we mature, we become what God wants us to be. You see, Christian maturity is not automatic. Do you know that? Listen, this is very, very important. Some people think because they've been, they were baptized 30, 40, 50 years ago, they're automatically a mature Christian. No, uh uh-uh. If you're normal physically... And you're born, by the time you're 20 or 25, you're more mature than you were too, right, physically. Spiritually, there's no guarantee. You can genuinely be a Christian for 50 years and you still need to be in the nursery every Sunday. Maturity happens as we pray and as we learn from the life's lessons and we let God mature us into who he wants us to be. Listen, God has an ideal picture of you here on this earth and it probably looks a lot different than what most of us look like right now. Let's look in verse 9 and 10 and see what they say. Not easy verses again. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And he was designated by God to be the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. What does this mean? Jesus was made perfect. This is very important. Folks, Jesus is always perfect. This is not talking about imperfect versus perfect. Most of the time in your Bible, in the New Testament, when you see the word perfect, it does not mean sinless, which Jesus was. It does not mean without flaw, which Jesus was. What it means is complete and mature. Matthew 5.48 says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. How many of you have heard that verse before? Many of you have. In fact, you may have had a mad parent or a mad Sunday school teacher or a mad music leader sometime tell you to be perfect. <laughs> I can't be perfect. The Bible says to be perfect. 
No, it's talking about mature and complete. Folks, Jesus was always sinless. Jesus was always without fault. What this is talking about here, and once made perfect, once he, he was mature and complete, it's the picture of a boy versus a man, a child versus an adult. He became the source of eternal salvation. It's, it's the picture of function, too, of being fitted or ready for the task. You see, what it's saying here is that when Jesus was born... We, we, we see things we think 2,000 years after the fact, okay? You, you need to go back 2,000 years and see it from the beginning. When Jesus was born, it wasn't automatic. Everything was going to be great, perfect, and, you know, he's going to live and die, da, 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 da. I mean, he struggled. He was tempted. He went through uh, hard, terrible times. The devil tempted him to sin. But as he went through these things, A man passionate in prayer as he allowed God to use these things to shape us. As he used these things and he went through them victoriously and he died on the cross as the sinless Savior and he walks out of the tomb, he fulfilled perfectly what God had put him here on this earth to do. Does that make sense? And it says a weird thing in verse 10 that he was a priest like Melchizedek. How many of you ever heard of Melchizedek? He's not some old man that lives in your neighborhood. It's not him. It may be, but not this guy. Melchizedek is a... It's going to be fun to get to heaven and meet this guy. In Genesis 14, he is mentioned. And it, it, we don't know anything about him. We don't know who, when he was born, who his parents were. We didn't, don't know when he died. It says he was a king and a priest, a very rare combination of things. And he was such an awesome person that Abraham, Father Abraham, you know who I'm talking about here, he bowed down and gave him a tithe of everything he had. And it says that Jesus Christ, when he completed his task, like Melchizedek, he was not only a priest, but he was a king. Not only a king, he was a priest. And all that's kind of complicated, confusing, but what I'm trying to bring that back to you is that God's trying to do something in your life. Two or three things are keeping you and me from becoming who God wants us to be. One is just immaturity. We're just not mature enough. We're not disciplined enough. We're not disciplined enough to pray. We go through a little heartache. We go through a little pain. We get mad at God and we pull away. We don't pray. We don't come to church. We we backslide. Then we feel terrible and we come back to God. And a lot of people go through that process their whole life. They never really learn the lessons. They experience them. They never learn from them. So what God's trying to do is God's trying to to, to use everything in your life like he did in Jesus's to shape you and to mature you. He has an ideal picture of what he wants you to be here on this earth. And, And I'll give you one summation of that. It's to look more and more like Jesus Christ. And as you submit yourself to him, As you learn from life, as you become more obedient, you become more and more who God wants you to be. See, God's got a function and a purpose for you. He's got a maturity and a perfection, a completeness that he's trying to develop in you. And the more you're submissive and prayerful, and the more you learn and you obey God, the more you become who he's called you to be. Paul Cho 
is the pastor of the largest church in the world. Folks, we think in America we know what a large church is. Paul chose churches in Seoul, Korea. They run four or 500,000 people on the weekends. Wouldn't that be neat? You get your newsletter. Oh, we only had 450,000 this Sunday. We were down a few. Wouldn't that be disappointing? <laughs> Easter Sunday, you had two million. What a great day. They baptize three, 400,000 people a year sometimes. Is that not incredible? That is wet and wild, isn't it? I mean, that is getting it all. They have baptismal ministers, I would imagine, big burly types. <laughs> Paul Cho was asked, what is the secret to your church? Here's his great answer. He said two things. We pray and we obey. We pray, we pray, we pray, and we find out what God's telling us to do through our suffering, through our pain, through His Word, and we just obey God. And that church is arguably one of the greatest in the world because it's built on those two things. That's Jesus Christ. God's calling you to be a big league Christian. The scary thing is the choice is yours. I want to ask you tonight, will you make that choice? Will you say to God, if you're a Christian, maybe where you're standing, maybe at the altar in just a moment, will you just say to God, God, help me to be everything you've called me to be here on this earth. Christian, I want, I, that's the first charge. Maybe you'd like to join the church tonight. You can come and do that. Or maybe you're not a Christian. And tonight is the night you need to give your life to Jesus Christ. We'll be down here waiting on you. Let's stand. Wayne's going to lead us in a hymn of response. A couple of our men are going to be down here. Remember, who you become in Christ is up to you. Make the right choice tonight.